Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is Week 22, Deuteronomy Chapters 16 and 17. Now we've spent the past two lessons in Deuteronomy 16 looking very carefully at some esoteric but clearly important aspects of the Feast of the Lord. And especially the ones that involve the requirement of pilgrimage to the tabernacle or eventually to the temple. Now since it is a very long and complex subject, we're we're not going to review all this today. I'm just going to advise you to refer to the last two lessons if you have questions. But we also studied the matter of the time that Yeshua spent in that hewn rock tomb and on the timeline of the details of when he died and was resurrected. And as I guess I expected, I received quite a few questions after class and in the following days. And you know, interestingly, most of them centered around your concerns of why is it that some of our most well-known and beloved pastors and Bible teachers seem to so easily just kind of talk around the issue of the firmly entrenched church position that Yeshua died on Friday and arose on Sunday. Okay, Obviously resulting in his spending two nights in the tomb. Yet I maintain that the scriptures plainly prophesy this event by saying he'll spend three days and three nights in the tomb. Now I'm not going to argue this Good Friday tradition or order of events from a doctrinal viewpoint. What I'd rather do is simply point out to you what the scriptures actually say and what historical documents from that era say and show you how they completely agree. And I kind of think that's what we did in our previous lesson. Now, one good question that did seem to come up more than once, though, was where does it literally say in the Bible that Jesus was three days and three nights in the tomb? All right. Well, we're going to address that head on and then we're going to finish up Deuteronomy chapter 16 and move forward a little bit more. Now, first, the prophecy of this was established when the prophet Jonah was sent to Nineveh by the Lord, but he balked because he didn't think that those foreign people were worthy of receiving God's word. He didn't want any chance of their redemption. Okay, And the result was, what? That Jonah got swallowed up by a giant fish. It says in Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, you know, it doesn't matter which of the hundreds of Bible translations one chooses to read. The three days and three nights schedule is established and it fully agrees with the original Hebrew and, and, by the way, 
the rabbinical commentary on the matter. Second, so where does the Bible say that this event concerning Jonah was actually prophetic of Jesus' time in the grave? Or was this merely an assumption that early Christians made that could be challenged? Well, Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he, Yeshua, answered them, Yeah, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no signs shall be given to you, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights are required to fulfill not some vague or fuzzy prophecy, but Jesus' exact words of what was going to happen. The Good Friday scenario cannot be correct. Okay, Yeshua could not have died on Friday during the daytime, spent Friday night in the tomb, then Saturday daytime, then Saturday nighttime in the tomb, and then arise Sunday morning. Because as try as one might, and there have been the silliest attempts to do it, Friday night and Saturday night are two nights. And Yeshua says he'd be in the heart of the earth for three. The only other possibility is that the event Jesus was speaking about of laying three days and three nights in the heart of the earth was not about his death and lying in in that tomb. But there's simply no other recorded event prophesied or known or carried out by Messiah that fulfills this scenario. As far as anything that's been revealed by God to man, it must be referring to his time in the tomb. Now, it is this misguided mentality of first establishing a doctrine in order to fulfill some kind of agenda and then twisting and contorting the scriptures to try and make it fit that has often left the church confused and afraid at times to actually explore the Bible for fear of what we just might find out. What Christian, especially of the evangelical persuasion, doesn't speak glowingly of taking the Bible literally, only to turn around and easily go around or discard everything that doesn't fit our traditions? Let me assure you, those of you who are at all new to Torah class, what you will find is that everything you ever counted on in Christ is fully established and validated in the Torah. The result of studying Torah is that doubts will diminish and faith will increase. 
The Word of God, all of it, not just some of it, is alive and well, accurate and reliable. And you know something? It can be understood by us all if we'll just take the time to learn it and open ourselves to the Holy Spirit as our guide. Now today we're going to continue with verse 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 16 where the subject matter takes a very significant shift away from the God-ordained worship practices and the biblical feasts and moves into the Lord's expectations of Israel's civil and religious authorities. In other words, what is about to come concerns every level of human government and it doesn't matter whether it's on the civil level or the religious level. Essentially the idea is that in God's economy there is no such thing as separation or compartmentalization of the spiritual away from the governmental. These laws apply to the religious leaders and to the government leaders. Okay. In Israel, there really was no strict dividing line between the two. Civil and religious law were all intertwined. So let's open up our Bibles to Deuteronomy 16. And we're going to start reading at uh, verse 18. We're going to go to the end. Very short little section. You are to appoint judges and officers for all your gates in the cities Adonai your God is giving you, tribe by tribe. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. You are not to distort justice or show favoritism, and you are not to accept a bribe, for a gift blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of even the upright. Justice, only justice you must pursue, so that you will live and inherit the land Adonai your God is giving you. You are not to plant any sort of tree as a sacred pole beside the altar of Adonai, your God, that you will make for yourselves. Likewise, do not set up a standing stone. Adonai, your God, hates such things. Now, the subject of human government is going to continue well into chapter 21 of Deuteronomy. And we're going to find that there are four basic types of human authorities that are going to be discussed. Kings, priests, judges, and prophets. Kings, priests, judges, and prophets. Now, there really isn't a good definition recorded in the Torah of what each of these offices and titles entails. It must have been already well understood in common knowledge among all the Middle Eastern cultures of that era. What we will find as a general rule is that it was not intended by God that these governmental authorities were to represent elite social classes above the normal working person on the socioeconomic scale. Nor was it envisioned that these governmental officials lord over the citizens in some arrogant manner. Rather, what we'll study is meant to set boundaries and limitations on how each of these four offices, king, priest, judge, prophet, are to operate. And to demonstrate that they are not above the scrutiny 
of the general public. Now it's interesting that this section begins by establishing the appointment of offices called judges and officials. Because after only a couple of verses, our attention is turned towards a prohibition against Israel setting up sacred poles and pillars. Undoubtedly, this is because throughout the Middle Eastern cultures of that day, it was the authorized government and the religious officials, not usually the general public, who were the ones who put up sacred poles and erected pillars. Although at times, we do find records of regular citizens doing that. Therefore, Israel's government and religious officials were told that they're not to mimic the general practices of Israel's pagan neighbors that on the surface seem so usual and ordinary and customary for that time. Now the first words of verse 18 are most literally recorded as you shall appoint for yourselves judges. And I point this out because the first question that any Israelite would have asked upon hearing you're going to have these judges and officials is, who's going to appoint them? And the answer is that the people do. And since tribal systems employed elders as the representatives of the people, elders who, elders were leaders, who, even though they were beholden to their tribe, they weren't necessarily beholden to the tribal chief. You see, it was actually those elders who were supposed to appoint the judges. Now, the Hebrew word for judge is shofet. And shortly after Israel conquered Canaan, we enter this 250 to 300-year era of the judges who ruled and led and delivered Israel from foreign oppressors. Now, we have an entire book of the Bible, one of the most fascinating books in the Bible, I think, by the way, all right, that addresses this period of time, and appropriately enough, it's called the Book of the Judges, or the Sefer of the Shoftim. Okay? Now, it is there, in Deut- rather, it is here in Deuteronomy, all right, where the office of, of Shofet is actually established. Now, it's not that a system of authority figures who sat in judgment of everyday civil matters was new, it was a new concept for Israel. Okay. We read in Exodus that at the encouragement of Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, Jethro, Moses set up a legal system whereby some men of integrity, elders, tribal elders, were chosen to become a kind of lower court to hear typical and mundane matters of the people. And if the matter proved too difficult or too serious in nature, only then would Moses and the high priest Aaron get involved in it. Now the difference is that under the system they were using out in the wilderness, legal matters were not handled tribe by tribe. That is, if a person belonged to the tribe of Judah... It wasn't just members of the tribe of Judah to which he answered. Rather, it was by means of a centralized system 
that Moses set up that a council of elders consisting of men from various tribes would sit in judgment of everyone. Okay. Now, however, on the mountains of Moab, just before entering into the promised land, things would change. Israel, while out in the wilderness, was, was a united nation operating under one leader, Moses. And as they went into Canaan to conquer it, the same tightly centralized organizational format that was most suited for a military operation that they were about to carry out would remain. It's just that Joshua would now be that ultimate authority. But almost immediately after Joshua, the central government of Israel weakened and essentially dissolved. So these ordinances in Deuteronomy about how the Israeli government would operate really only take effect after the land of Canaan has been secured. When the military style administration and structure wasn't needed anymore. And after each of the 12 tribes had established a good foothold in the district of land allotted to each of them. Because this envisioned the time when each tribe would be more autonomous. Therefore, each tribe would have its own set of judges and officials. The key is that while Israel would soon become a more decentralized system of government in Canaan, the Lord still fully expected that each tribe would operate under the same common set of principles, the law. The Torah. And Torah principle number one is stated at the end of verse 18. These judges and officials were to govern with what it says as righteous judgment. In Hebrew, Mishpat Sadek. Verse 19 explains the fundamentals of righteous judgment in God's eyes. First, the judgment must be fair. Second, there can be no favoritism. Third, there can't be any taking of bribes from one party or the other in a dispute because that's just liable to tilt the outcome unjustly in the favor of the one who gave the gift. Now, I have a bit of a bone to pick with the translation used in verse 20 by the complete Jewish Bible and frankly all but a small handful of other Bible translations. Verse 20 typically says, justice and only justice you must pursue. So now certainly this meaning is not outside of what God's intent is with his justice system, but in Hebrew, the words are sedek and only sedek you must pursue. Sedek means righteousness, not justice. So the admonition to the judges and officials more accurately reads, righteousness and only righteousness you must pursue. The significance is, you see, that righteousness is the basis for God's entire justice system. And therefore, righteousness 
is the goal for which the judging of every case should aim. And since righteousness can only come from God, then so it is, so it is that true justice can only come from God. The statement of verse 20, therefore, is not some fuzzy or emotionally charged order saying that the magistrates are to judge fairly. What else are you going to say? Rather, it's a commandment to institute the Lord's system of righteousness and not mandate some judicial philosophy that will vary according to circumstances and who's currently in charge. And it is that system of mishpat zedek, righteous judgment, righteous judge, justice rather, right? that the law establishes and the law must be scrupulously followed at all times when Israel is deciding legal matters. Now, in, in addition to administering God's justice system faithfully, as a logical and proper response for the leaders of God's people, there's a blessing that comes from doing so. It is that Israel may thrive and occupy the land that God intends on giving them. This is not the first or the last time that we're going to see Moses tell the people that following Jehovah's commands and ordinances, that beyond that, it's more than simple mechanical obedience. Living under righteous justice is indispensable if they expect to hang on to the land after they conquer it. And if they expect that land to produce an abundance. Now comes three completely unacceptable religious practices that it's the responsibility of the people to avoid and it's the responsibility of the government officials to ruthlessly stamp out. In verse 21, the first of the three is that Israel is not to set up a sacred post or any kind of, of pole, religious pole, next to the altar of God Almighty. In Hebrew it says they're not to set up an Asherah. Now, the definition of an Asherah is worth spending a few moments with. An Asherah simply means any kind of a wooden pole or, or tree or tree-like object that's dedicated to a god. It's not that the pagans looked upon these poles as gods or goddesses. It's that they were but god symbols that honored certain of their gods. The Canaanites had long ago begun erecting two different kinds of objects to honor their two primary gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. Therefore, at some point, long before Israel ever began its conquest of Canaan, a fir tree or a wooden pole used for a religious purpose in the land of Canaan became almost exclusively associated with the Canaanite goddess of fertility, Ashtoreth. 
That is why in the next verse, the matter of the object used by the Canaanites to honor their chief god, Baal, was also prohibited. The object is a stone pillar, sometimes referred to as a standing stone. So in Canaan, a stone pillar was the common way of denoting an altar or a shrine in honor of the male god, Baal. And a tree or a wooden post was planted next to an altar or a shrine built in honor of the female goddess, Ashtoreth. By the way, in Canaanite god mythology, Ashtoreth was Baal's wife. Naturally, the Lord says, don't you dare use a tree or a pole or a standing stone next to my altar as a means to dedicate that altar to me, Yehovah. God doesn't want something that is obviously symbolic of the Canaanites' gods to simply be reused, renamed, and rededicated to him. And such was a pretty usual practice when one society conquered another society's sacred places. It's very interesting. If you go to Spain today, some of the greatest cathedrals were mosques that were converted. All right, when the Christians beat back the Muslims, finally, and they just pretty much left them as, as they were and brought in all the, at that time, Catholic um, items and started placing them on the walls, presto changeo, all right, we have a Christian place. This is why we're going to see many laws in the Bible against doing certain things like the infamous uh, cooking a a goat kid in its mother's milk (laughs) that on the surface don't seem to have anything inherently bad about it, but they're outlawed because they were Canaanite, recognized Canaanite worship practices. And God didn't want those injected into worship of him. Now, if you're paying attention, some may be asking themselves, yourselves right about now, why is it that if stone pillars, standing stones, are emphatically prohibited by the Lord, that we find Jacob erecting one to El Shaddai? as he's on his journey from Canaan to Mesopotamia some five centuries earlier, or we have Abraham setting up one to El Shaddai under the Tamarisk tree in Beersheba hundreds of years, hundred years or more before that. In fact, Moses set up 12 of these stones at Mount Sinai, and Joshua would eventually have an enormous standing stone set up at Shechem, and all of this to honor Yehovah, and not a hint that Yehovah objected to it. Now, I can't give you a completely satisfactory answer to this because I don't know why for sure the Lord didn't come down real hard on this practice. I'm confident it has to do with an understanding that's woven into the fabric of the Torah and the Bible in general. It is that no object or living creature is of itself inherently 
unclean or evil. Rather, the issue is what an object or creature is used for and to whom it's meant to identify, along with dog, God's declaration uh, concerning the holy or unclean status he, is, he ascribes to that object or living creature, that's the issue. Now that doesn't mean that Israel had the legitimate option to take that which God prohibits and make it permissible simply because to their minds they felt they were doing a better or a more loving thing. And the same thing goes for us. So an uncut stone stood up on its edge doesn't become inherently evil. A tree or a pole that has been formed from a tree trunk and sunk into the ground is not inherently wicked. But when these things are used as an attempt to honor the Lord, at least it's been so since the time of Moses and the giving of the law, the Lord has prohibited it because it can too easily become confused with well-known pagan worship practices. Now, that's not too hard to understand, is it? The intent of the worshiper of God in doing these things may not be to mix paganism with worship of Jehovah, but the effect is that we have disobeyed the commandments of the Father and we've put our thoughts ahead of His. Because He's firmly said, don't do it. And second, doing these kinds of things, regardless of our motives, can cause confusion among those who we're trying to teach within the body of believers and great misunderstanding among those who we're trying to reach who are outside the community of God. The reality is that the ability for man, for us, to distinguish on our own between the legitimate and the idolatrous can just be too difficult if we try to do it outside the Word of God. Therefore, as we search for technicalities and loopholes and exceptions and ways to inject what we're convinced comes from the pure state of our hearts into matters that the laws of the Lord often says we're just simply to avoid. We're going to fail far more often than we succeed in upholding our righteousness that's only a gift of grace in the first place. Now let's move on to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're going to read the first 13 verses. Deuteronomy chapter 17. You are not to sacrifice to Adonai your God a cow or a sheep that has a defect or anything wrong with it. That would be an abomination to Adonai your God. If there's found among you Within any of your gates in any city that Adonai your God gives you, a man or a woman who does what Adonai your God sees as wicked, transgressing his covenant by going and serving other gods and worshiping them, the sun, the moon, anything in the sky, 
something I've forbidden, and it is told to you or you hear about it, then you are to investigate the matter diligently. If it's true, if it's confirmed that such detestable things are being done in Israel, then you're to bring that man or woman who has done this wicked thing to your city gates and stone that man or woman to death. The death sentence is to be carried out only if there was testimony from two or three witnesses. He may not be sentenced to death on the testimony of only one witness. The witnesses are to be the first to stone him to death. Afterwards, all the people are to stone him. Thus, you will put an end to this wickedness among you. Now, if a case comes before you at your city gate, which is too difficult for you to judge, concerning bloodshed or a civil suit or personal injury or any other controversial issue, you are to get up, go to the place where which Adonai your God will choose and appear before the priests who are Levites and the judge in office at the time. Seek their opinion. They will render a verdict for you. You will then act according to what they have told you there at that place, which Adonai will choose. You are to take care to act according to all their instructions. In accordance with the Torah, they teach you. You are to carry out the judgment they render, not turning aside to the right or to the left from the verdict they declare to you. Anyone presumptuous enough not to pay attention to the priest appointed there to serve Adonai your God or to judge, that person must die. Thus you will exterminate such wickedness from Israel. All the people will hear about it and be afraid to continue acting presumptuously. The very first instruction given in this chapter is that only unblemished animals are to be offered to Yehovah. To offer anything else is to show the Lord our contempt. In fact, God calls such a thing aberrant to him. That's pretty strong language. Offering the Lord anything but a perfect sacrifice is wrong. He demands our best. When we know that is what he expects, and we do it, do we, uh, we do otherwise, it's just a matter of deception. In Acts 5, for instance, is the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who brought a gift of offering that on the surface seemed proper and acceptable, but they held back some secretly. They deceived, and that decision proved to be fatal. The most fundamental commandment of the Mosaic Covenant is that Israel shall worship no other gods. And so verse 2 explains what it is that government officials are to do with somebody who's suspected of idolatry. And while it might seem obvious to us today, there are some basics as to just what constitutes worshiping other gods, that are set down as a guide to the judges who are going to be deciding um, the fate of the accused. Now let me repeat that so that we can understand what's going on here. Most of what we're going to find in chapters 17 through 21 of Deuteronomy are guidelines set down for the various magistrates and officials of Israel 
who are being given the responsibility to adjudicate cases brought before them on any number of possible violations of the law. The Lord expects these guidelines for the administration of his righteous justice to be followed in every territory, in every settlement that Israel establishes, as it says in the first few words of verse 2. And the first thing we notice is that this edict applies to men and women. And the next is that to worship other gods is a direct affront to Jehovah and it violates the covenant he's made with Israel. Now it's interesting that in verse 3 the Lord makes it clear that to send worship towards the sun and the moon and the stars is something that he has never commanded. The statement is designed to refute the idea that the heavenly bodies were made to be worshipped and that in earlier times the Lord commanded that such a thing was permissible. It is designed to deny what others have said, namely that it's okay to do this. The idea here is that indeed the luminaries of the sky are classified as some of those other gods and they are a typical example of the kinds of things that wind up being worshipped by humans but they shouldn't be. As a matter of fact, we'll read of places where God will say, yes, they're up there, I put them up there and I knew that people were going to worship them, that pagans will go ahead and worship them. He gave him a means. Now let's be clear. (laughs) Pretty sure God's aware there's no other gods. He knows that Baal and Ashtoreth and Marduk and Zeus and Allah and all the rest are just a bunch of ridiculous names for figments of men's fertile imaginations. But men have always thought otherwise. God is quite confident, I think, that the planets and the stars and the moons that he's created are just that. Created things. Balls of of rocks or gases that have no souls. They have no divine power. But men often think otherwise. Now I tell you this, something that everybody listening to me already fully understands, because even though no other gods exist in any kind of physical or spiritual form, they do exist within the evil inclinations of our human minds. So when your pastors and rabbis remind you that Messiah and the Apostles warn that money or wealth or power or your job or your status in society or anything that we put a tremendous hope or stock in can be rather easily and unconsciously elevated to a position of being another god. This is not allegory. This is not divine hyperbole meant to be taken with a grain of salt. Money is no more inherently a god than is the moon. 
or a standing stone or a carved image. But neither is money any different in its ability to corrupt or to become elevated to a position of supreme importance than is the moon, the stars, a standing stone, or a carved image. It's all one big ball of wax. And so we can all be tempted to commit idolatry with any of those things and pretend sometimes that it's actually a very godly thing to do. Be leery of the latest avenue of apostasy and idolatry within God's church, the prosperity doctrine. Now, after defining what worshiping other gods amounts to, verse 4 begins an explanation of exactly what the procedure of the judges and officials should be when confronting someone who's been accused of a serious act of rebellion. And it is that as soon as the local officials are informed of a possible violation of God's law, a thorough investigation must be initiated. And if it turns out that the accused has indeed worshipped other gods, then whether male or female, that person is to be publicly executed by means of stoning. Now, the words of this judicial procedure are even more exacting than it might seem. Because when it says, and it is told to you or you hear about this crime, it means that whether a judge hears about this possible violation from a direct report from a responsible person or it's just a rumor that's floating around, there has to be an investigation. Now, please note, This isn't the case with all possible violations of the law. It is that the commission of idolatry is so serious that even the rumor of it occurring within Israel must be immediately investigated. However, since the only possible punishment for idolatry is death, then at least two, and ideally more, witnesses must step forward and testify. Now let's be clear. Witnesses then, in almost all cases, were also the accusers. A witness isn't like what we see today, whereby a person might testify as to DNA evidence or or, or the make of a car or the medical nature of somebody's injuries. Witnesses in the Bible area era rather were what we today call eyewitnesses. It was those who claim to have been present when the crime was committed and they actually saw it happen. But a witness in Bible times had an even greater duty. A witness was also an executioner in a capital case. As verse 7 says, those who are the witnesses and by whose claims will cause the death of the accused, they have to be the first to throw the stones at the criminal. And then the remainder of the communities to join in. Now there's some really good psychology behind this protocol. First, a witness who gives untruthful testimony in a capital case that leads to the execution 
if an innocent person now has blood on his head. Okay, what that means is that he's now a murderer and he's subject to execution. And just as anyone who is guilty of blood in the Old Testament, he is permanently cut off from God. This means both physical and spiritual death. Therefore, there was a safeguard in place meant to discourage rash or intentionally false testimony. And by requiring several witnesses, testimony could be verified. Then, after accusers, witnesses, began the execution process, they were the first to throw the stones, then the entire community is to come and join in and finish the job. Can you imagine what an impression was made on everybody who picked up a stone and threw it at that criminal? It was bloody. It was graphic. It was awful. It wasn't sanitary. Not of our public view like it is today. It didn't have a goal of being painless for the perpetrator. It didn't have a goal of being painless for the community. God doesn't enjoy the death of even a wicked person. Neither should his people. But the entire community participating in such a thing as execution, in doing this, nobody could say that they didn't know about it or they didn't have full realization of just how terrible a thing an execution is and thus how full of consequences sin can be. In the end, though, This was also about the entire community affirming God's justice system. It was an entire community acknowledging that high-handed evil had been committed, first and foremost against God. And it was their job to purge this wickedness from, from their society. This is job number one of human government. Now, just as in the wilderness, when it was the job of the board of elders to decide everyday cases, and if it was a serious or, or matter or beyond their ability to decide it, then they would refer the matter upward to Moses. So it's going to be once Israel settles in the promised land. Beginning in verse 8, government officials are told to establish higher, a higher court where matters too difficult for the local courts are to be decided. Now let me be explicit. This was not a court of appeals. Okay? This was not a situation whereby a lower court made a ruling and then the accused sought it to be overturned. This was a matter of a case that is more difficult or serious than the lower court was capable of handling who we're talking about, or one that the elders just maybe couldn't even come to an agreement on the verdict. There was no appeal system in the law. If the lower court decided the matter, the result stood, that was the end of it. The instruction that the case is to be brought 
To a place the Lord your God has chosen means that is to be brought to a central tribunal. The lower courts, once Israel was established in the land, were where matters were tried by the tribe to which a person belonged. Each of the twelve tribes had their own territory and therefore they each had their own lower court. Okay, But if the lower court judges couldn't agree upon the case, then it went to a higher court that usually consisted of Levite priests. The Levite priests were considered to be more sophisticated in their understanding of the law, and therefore they were the most qualified to decide the tough cases. Further, the priesthood was an authority over all Israel, so a panel of priests had the duty to decide cases brought to them from all of the twelve tribes. The place where your Lord chooses was not necessarily the location of the tabernacle. Rather, it was any of the 48 Levitical cities that were scattered throughout the Holy Lands. And undoubtedly, it would have been the closest one to wherever that lower court resided that was being used in any particular matter. Now, verse 10 makes it clear that whatever the board of Levitical priests decided, their decision was final and it carried authority over any of the twelve tribes. Therefore, the punishment, if there was one, was to be carried out immediately and fully and without recourse. In fact, the instructions go so far as to say that if the local authorities, meaning the local tribal leaders, refuse to act in accordance with the ruling of the higher court and the tribal official or group of officials, they're to be executed. Now, there were practical reasons for this threat to be added. I've taught you before about some of the nuances of the tribal system of uh, societal organization, and the bottom line is that loyalty to one's tribe is everything. The goal of every tribe is to be the most dominant one over all the other ones. The idea of several tribal chiefs or princes giving their personal loyalty or releasing some of their personal power to a centralized authority ran against the grain. Out in the wilderness, Moses was constantly dealing with this reality and therefore there was, he was in kind of a never-ending running battle with the twelve tribal chiefs of Israel to try and maintain some kind of national unity. But in their journey from Egypt, it was understood by most Israelites that their survival depended on mutual cooperation of the tribes. But once they had settled inside their own land and the allotments were given, the perceived need for a national unity and mutual protection diminished. So each tribal leader became the supreme authority over everybody who lived in his territory. So we've examined now one of the four basic types of human government authority that God has authorized for Israel, that being judges. And now in verse 14, it establishes the next kind, a king. Now this surprises a lot of people. Because most folks who know their Bibles think about when Samuel appointed King Saul and the generally negative attitude 
of that narrative about the crowning of the first king of Israel. Yet here we have Yehovah anticipating the day that Israel will have a king. And so it lists the boundaries and the rules that Israel's kings are going to operate under. Or at least they're supposed to. Now it's informational that this section is the only place in the Torah that brings up the subject of the possibility of there being a king over Israel. And the tone is one that such an occurrence would be an eventual concession, if you would, to the people. Not as something the Lord ideally wants for Israel. And therefore there's going to be restrictions. First is that the king must be somebody that Yehovah chooses, although it doesn't indicate how this choice was going to be communicated. And second was that this king had to be an Israelite, a Hebrew, never a foreigner. Now let me comment And we'll close. That this matter of a king being agreed to by the Lord is prophetic. It was speaking about a time around 300 years after Moses when this was going to happen. But at the time of Deuteronomy, this certainly was not imminent. Now some minimalist Bible scholars have argued that this mention of a king here in Deuteronomy wasn't even written until well after the Babylonian exile. Because by then Israel had had some pretty bad experiences with kings. So they wanted to lay down some rules to control these tyrants and attribute them to God. There is no reason to read such a late date into these passages. The entire known world had kings during Moses' era, and Canaan was home to dozens, probably scores of them. What a king did, how he came into power, how he ruled and more was well established since time immemorial, and for a people to not have a king over them was almost unthinkable. Therefore, it was but human nature that Israel, despite God's offer to be both their God and king, would have, they would eventually demand a visible human monarch to reign over them, just like their neighbors had. When we meet again, we're going to examine these limitations that the Lord God has decreed for all the future kings of Israel.